Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this episode is part of our World in 30 Minutes mini-series on the end of the world. This is the place where we talk about how the global order, which has defined the world for the last few decades, is gradually crumbling, falling apart, being challenged, bursting at the seams, or maybe even being reinvented as something else. This week, I am thrilled to be joined by Anu Bradford, who is a European sitting in New York. She's the Henry L. Moses Professor of Law and International Organization at Columbia Law School. And she's also the director for the European Legal Studies Center there. Her research and teaching focuses on international trade law, European Union law, and she is the author of a really fascinating and very influential paper called The Brussels Effect, which looks at how the EU has emerged as a regulatory superpower. So, Anu, maybe before we talk about The Brussels Effect, I can ask you what the liberal international order means to you. So the liberal international order, I think, is when I when I look at the the beginning of my career, I went to law school the year Finland joined the European Union and the WTO was formed and uh, and was fascinated and optimistic. I saw the liberal international order as the source for wealth and stability and progress in the world, um, cared about it enough to to make it my career. And I've studied it ever since. And uh what I never saw, though, uh, was uh, the, the reality that we face today. So I didn't expect maybe a linear growth in all good things and the directions to which the liberal international order would be growing and taking us to. But um, the, the past years um, have really taken even somebody who spent a lot of time thinking about this uh, by surprise. So if the liberal order is kind of in the process of, of collapsing or being frayed at the edges with a lot of the big institutions that we've come to rely on disappearing. What does that mean for Europe? I mean, how can Europe react to the destruction of global regimes in different areas? Um, the, the future of international liberal order is absolutely crucial for Europe. Europe as a shaper of that all order, but Europe that is also to some extent at the mercy of that order. So Europe itself is a creation of the forces that are foundation of the liberal international order. And I think the prime example of what Europe can be at its best, also what the liberal international order can be at its best. So uh, in many ways, I think Europe has an enormous stake in the future of that order, which is why Europe can never afford to be passive and, and watch from the sideline if that order is under threat. Um, if the US uh, withdraws from that order, I think Europe needs to do more than offset that, but really assume the responsibility for the future of that order and work with the other parties and, and continue to engage the United States and different forces within the United States that continue to support that order. But I think there's no question in my mind that whether it is um, principal considerations, whether it's very instrumental policy-driven considerations, whether it's value-based, Europe needs the liberal international order. As, and as I um, have argued and will continue to argue, 
the liberal international order will need a very strong Europe as a foundation and as a supporter of that order. But I suppose one of the questions which I'm wondering is, is to what extent you can have a, a liberal order in one continent? Because if the, the global uh, institutions or deals end up being undermined, whether it's the, the Paris Climate Accord or the World Trade Organization, how much can Europe rely on its unilateral power to, to force other players to follow its rules and to become part of the, the EU's regulatory empire? So I think Europe has several powers and instruments um, of influence at its disposal. Some of those are its ability to, to influence outcomes through multilateral venues, uh, international negotiations, international organizations, institutions, uh, treaties like the Paris Accord. And some of those powers that it has are unilateral. And that is what I uh, focus on in my in my theories and writing on the Brussels effect. So sometimes unilateral uh, leveraging of the power is very costly. And that's when it's clearly in the interest of Europe to pursue its uh, influence and worldview through multilateral institutions. It's more legitimate. Uh, it relies on engagement, uh, but also then uh, spreads the cost of maintaining that order so that it's not all resting on Europe's shoulders. So in many ways, I don't think it is ever ideal for Europe to think that it, it, it would be able to, since it can do a lot unilaterally, it doesn't need those institutions, it doesn't need multilateralism. I, ideally, Europe has both. And in many ways, the two can reinforce with each other. But um, I've taken the view that Europe uses unilateralism and multilateralism strategically, depending on where it has the greatest um, ability to influence the outcomes and, and shape the world uh, to its liking. There are certain areas where unilateralism will never be a way for Europe to achieve what it wants. So when it comes to containing um, Iran, when it comes to uh, the crisis uh, potentially in, in the Korean Peninsula, Europe's unilateral regulatory, regulatory power will do little to guarantee stability there. So I don't think there is ever a state of the world where I would advocate for an isolationist uh, unilateral Europe and take a lot of confidence uh, that it would be the kind of world order where Europe would be comfortable and, uh, and prosperous. But at the same time, there are certain areas of uh, global politics where Europe has the ability and often even the incentive uh, to go it alone and where it's not dependent on the co uh, cooperation of sometimes reluctant uh, administrations around the world. So wh which areas do you think they are? So, so mainly where Europe can influence outcomes unilaterally. Um, it is the regulatory power where Europe is uh, leveraging its ability to regulate the environment, protect the consumers, um, whether it's through food safety, various product regulations, the, uh, the, the regulation of health, human health, those are uh, areas that really influence the everyday lives of individuals. It really affects the air we breathe, the food we eat, the products we produce, um, the, the products we consume, the privacy that we afford uh, to individuals, um, the hate speech that we tolerate online. Um, those um, are not necessarily the traditional high politics if we think about national security. 
But I think it's very hard to leverage power and, and exercise unilateralism by anybody, even if you have the military capacity that Europe doesn't have. So those domains often rely on cooperation much more. But when it comes to the regulation of economic outcomes, the regulation of markets, the, the conduct of multinationals and how they go about their businesses, I think that's where Europe is, is very strong and has the unilateral capacity to um, influence outcomes. So basically your argument is that this Brussels effect comes from the fact that the European single market is the biggest market in the world and that if companies want to have access to it, they can only do it if they follow European rules. And that's a way of actually making sure that these rules don't just have their effect within the European Union, but can affect companies from, from other countries and therefore might change the way that those companies operate outside of EU, uh, outside of the EU itself. Is that right? Absolutely, absolutely, Mark. That is well put. So where it really starts is that where the, the, the foundation of EU's uh, unilateral power and the Brussels effect is really in its market size. So EU is uh, a go-to destination for many of the products around the world. There are very few companies that can afford to forego the relatively wealthy over 500 million consumers in Europe. So the market is attractive enough to become a destination for world's exports. And uh, so Europe has the market size then to set the standards and the companies who want to trade with Europe need to comply with the European standards. But what is interesting that what we have uh, underappreciated is the ability of Europe to leverage that market size for influence also outside its borders. And that really rests on this uh, idea of the incentives that come from scale economies and other benefits of uniform production. So if you are a manufacturer of chemicals in the United States and you want to trade your chemicals in Europe, so you are covered and you have to comply by the REACH regulation, the very stringent European regulation of chemicals. It is often too costly for you then to produce different chemical components for different parts of the world. So instead what you do, you apply the European standard to cover the global production. So even the chemicals that you export to the other parts of the world end up meeting the European standard because as long as you comply with the highest standard, you are able to trade everywhere in the world. And that happens whether it's then antitrust, whether it's privacy, whether it's environmental standards, so, so forth. But it really is, the starting point is the market size. So if you have an, a, a small market somewhere, say you have uh, Costa Rica that decides to be really pro-environment and, and ratchets up its standards, the companies can forego the Costa Rican market and say, well, we just don't trade there, but they cannot forego the European market. And that's the big, so the starting point is the market size. The market size is not the only one. It's not the, uh, the only thing. The US doesn't have the same influence or China, even though both of those have a big market as well. But that's where we start. So what are the other features that allow the EU to have this universal reach beyond the market size? Right. So then uh, the, the EU can leverage the market size and convert it into this power because it also has the regulatory capacity. So it has an enormous bureaucratic power uh, in the sophistication and the resources available in Brussels to generate these rules. Um, so China, for instance, doesn't have a comparable regulatory capacity across its, the different areas um, in its administration. 
Uh, the U.S. would have the regulatory capacity, but it often lacks the third component, the regulatory propensity, the willingness to generate stringent rules. So EU also has the, the, the domestic political economy where there are the preferences. People like high levels of environmental protection. Uh, consumer protection is something that is supported by uh, across the political parties. Um, the same with the protection of privacy. There is a political dynamic that just generates a much uh, more stringent rule. So you have the market size, you've got the regulatory capacity, you've got the preference for stringent rules. But the two remaining aspects that it's also very Europe, uh, the first, the, the fourth one at least very Europe specific is that Europe regulates inelastic targets. So Europe mainly regulates the environment, consumer markets. They don't move if the regulations get too stringent. Compared to, if you compare that to finance, so if you have a too stringent regulation of capital, the capital can move to other markets, whereas the consumers or the environment, they do not move. So the, the choice of regulating inelastic targets makes it impossible for the targets of the regulation to escape the jurisdiction. And finally, what I've argued as part of this Brussels effect theory is that the ability for Europe to regulate not just its own market, but influence the production globally and globalize its standards, that comes from the non-divisibility of the regulation. So in many areas, and that's what we already talked about, the, the, the benefits of uniform production, the scale economies that make it more advantageous um, for the companies to apply the European standard worldwide, as opposed to taking advantage of uh, less stringent standards in different parts of the world. So Microsoft has chosen to have a one global standard for privacy, and that is the European standard, even if there are other markets that would not require uh, Microsoft to offer the same degree of privacy protections uh, to um, the consumers. It is the European standard that, that makes it because of this non-divisibility, because of the cost of producing multiple products for different markets. It, it, it makes a business case for the company. So there's nothing EU needs to do to force that standard globally or to negotiate that standard globally. It's really the individual business decisions of the companies where they decide to apply the European standard to cover their worldwide conduct. That's a, a very clear set of criteria which allow things to work as opposed to, to not working. If you look out at the kind of different challenges to the liberal order that we see at the moment from Donald Trump, from Xi Jinping, from Vladimir Putin, and you think about the different tools which the EU has through the Brussels effect, what do you think are the main areas where unilateral action could help to prevent the, the crumbling of multilateral agreements? If we start from uh, President Trump, so some of his most high-profile decisions uh, in the international sphere relate to the withdrawal from the Paris Accord, so the setback for climate change um, advocates. Um, I think that's one area where I don't think the Brussels effect can entirely offset or fill the void um, left by U.S.'s uh, disengagement. But there are many areas where the, the uh, Brussels effect will dictate that the companies will continue to produce their products to greater environmental standards. So if we think about 
let's say, uh, automobiles. It is one of the most important industries uh, in the United States. Um, Germany is the destination, a third most important destination for American cars. And when Europe has more stringent automobile emission standards, it is a reason for the U.S. car manufacturers to continue to produce less emission-generating automobiles. And the Brussels effect theory would dictate that they will most likely continue to apply those standards to, um, to the, the entirety of the, the production. So there are environmental areas, the environmental regulations, where we may see uh, some ability of the EU unilaterally to offset uh, disengagement from the uh, Paris Accord. The second one is, the, is trade. So uh, trade agreements today, they are not uh, negotiations about tariffs. They are negotiations about regulatory standards. So the United States decided to uh, withdraw from the TPP. Uh, we have very little hope that uh, negotiations on the TTIP would proceed um, uh, with this ad administration in place. Um, in many ways, the only thing US is uh, accomplishing is that it is ceding the entire sphere of global regulation to European unilateralism. So in many ways, these trade agreements would be an opportunity for the United States to commonly negotiate an alternative global standard. But at the same time, the United States doesn't seem to uh, understand it or worry about it. Um, a third area I may uh, consider when it comes to President Trump is um, there's a lot of concern on him prioritizing national security over privacy, uh, a greater toleration of hate speech in general. Hate speech online has uh, very interesting applications where many of the U.S. companies are now following the EU's understanding and EU's less tolerant approach to hate speech online. And it is very hard for them to make it divisible whereby they would start removing some content only in Europe, where at the same time geoblocking has its, its difficulties and it's very hard to uh, separate every time the online activity that would and would not have a connection uh, to Europe. So those are some examples um, where we may see uh, some of the US regulatory uh, setbacks or rollbacks being offset by the EU. What about in areas like the Iran nuclear deal? Is that something where um, the EU... Because I mean, one of the interesting things is when you get extraterritoriality uh, from different countries clashing. And one of the problems which um, Europeans have is that the US also has a huge amount of extraterritoriality for its control of the global financial system. And that threatens the ability of Europeans to stand by their side of the Iran nuclear deal if the US uh, imposes sanctions on European companies that operate in Iran? Yeah, so I don't think Brussels effect is a, as helpful of a framework when it comes to either international finance, uh, when it comes to sanctions, or when it comes to something like the Iran nuclear uh, deal. So I think that is still the prime example going back to our uh, earlier part of our conversation where Europe needs also multilateralism. It needs the cooperation of other countries. Uh, Iran nuclear deal is one of those that uh, EU uh, cannot uh, guarantee uh, on its own. There may be other avenues of influence that the EU can use, and, uh, but at the same time, that's where I'm less hopeful that the EU can leverage uh, its unilateral powers. So if its unilateral power doesn't work, are there ways that it can try and counteract other uh, countries' unilateralism, because 
What, one of the very interesting debates which is taking place in many European capitals now is exactly about the way that the US um, uses its unilateralism against European companies. So a lot of banks had big fines like BNP Paribas, which was fined billions of, uh, of dollars by the state of New York because of, uh, because of vi sanctions violations. Um, and people are sort of wondering whether there are ways of, of pushing back against that, either by having some way of insuring European companies against uh, American sanctions if they operate in places which are still legal according to European laws, or uh, even by taking out sanctions uh, against American companies as a way of leveling the playing field. Right. So um, besides the sort of general power that the EU retains um, when it comes to international bargaining, given how much the destinies of many countries and their businesses get entangled with European regulations, whether Europe can leverage any of that um, and form an issue linkage to something where that power is missing and give some concessions so that uh, EU could uh, leverage its power also where the unilateralism otherwise wouldn't exist, that, that may be possible. But in many ways, uh, with, the, with the sanctions, it's a very different uh, dynamic. And uh, the, the sanctions uh, where uh, the European companies might still be more at the, the mercy of the forces on that forces that are not entirely within Europe's control. So that's something where I see that we have uh, complications and, and, and challenges where uh, the outcomes are uh, less straightforward and less driven by the, the forces of the market as such. Okay, so when we think about the future of the liberal order, we, we're asking all of the guests on this podcast to uh, complete the sentence, the liberal international order is dot, dot, dot. How would you complete that sentence? Oh, the liberal international order will increasingly rely on the European Union. So a version of that, perhaps just as an, a, a strong call for Europe to understand uh, its role, uh, to understand uh, the importance that it has, not just a, a generator of uh, multilateral uh, rules as it needs to continue to do diplomatically and through other forms of engagement, but also um, the opportunity to replace um, international order that is a result of multilateralism uh, to an international order that is a result of unilateralism. So I think traditionally we've associated unilateralism with uh, more of a, a power-based politics that was that generate uh, from the United States and we've associated Europe with multilateralism. But I think if we passively wait for multilateralism to solve many of the problems um, we, it is that the weight is too costly and the opportunity costs are too high, in particular when the EU has the power to influence many of the outcomes and sustain many of the international regimes and international standards through its unilateral involvement. So in that sense, I would probably bring Europe to the center and also offer the alternative perspective when many times in the discussions, Europe is portrayed as too weak to lead too consumed by its uh, international uh, in internal struggles, too inward focus. 
But in many ways, this inward focus um, has actually generated such a robust internal market that Europe can, in many ways, uh, leverage uh, in, the, in the way that actually very much helps to sustain international outcomes. Thank you very much. So the other question I'm asking all the guests on this podcast is if they're interested in uh, topics that we've had, where can they go to find out more? For you, um, obviously, a, a good starting point is on your, with your article, The Brussels Effect. There was, uh, uh, the original version was published by the Northwestern University Law Review in 2013, but we had a fantastic article by you picking up on that theme in a collection of essays I edited called The Connectivity Wars, which is available from ECFR's website. And I hear that you're also writing a, a new uh, book-length treatment of the Brussels effect, but people probably have to wait at least a, a year or two before that comes out. So in the meantime, where else should they go if they want to find out more about these topics? So um, the Brussels effect has generated uh, a lot of uh, subsequent scholarly articles. So political scientists, legal scholars, economists have written and uh, expanded on uh, the Brussels effect. I think they generated uh, in many ways a fascinating set of conversations. Uh, so not only finding my work, but the way the others have built on my work is something that um, I uh, wholeheartedly recommend. Um, I am particularly interested now in the book that I will be uh, examining some of the questions we discussed today, but also the same logic, how it applies to uh, Brexit. So there's some popular writing um, leveraging the Brussels effect concept and, and using that to show uh, what I've argued, which is that uh, Brexit will not deliberate the UK from EU's regulatory leash. So in many ways, um, I, I am intrigued by this conversation and hope that that understanding also gets entrenched in the negotiations that in many ways what happens uh, in the UK is that the UK is just voluntarily now becoming a rule taker instead of a rule maker in ever more tightly regulated Europe. So that is an, an aspect of the conversation that I also think may be interesting for others. And are there any specific articles or books, apart from the ones which you're, you've, uh, we've mentioned already, that people should go to if they want to, to get deeper in this? Um, I don't think there's a, a sort of single uh, book or article that I would uh, refer uh, people to look at. I really liked our connectivity book because it also embeds the Brussels effect into other ways the EU is uh, using its influence. And I think it sets a really nice context that helps people understand where this particular type of power fits. I think part of our conversation today um, indicated that I, I never want to oversell that power. It's an element uh, of international policy making and, uh, and uh, rule making, uh, but it certainly doesn't operate as the only tool. So I also enjoy those uh, conversations where people have the access to look at this in the context of other elements of influence. Okay, well, thank you very much for talking to us. It's been absolutely fascinating. And if you've enjoyed listening to us, you should go straight to Facebook or Twitter or whatever social media platforms you like using and tell all your friends about it. And if you can go to the iTunes uh, webpage and give us a review, you will also have a chance to win one of the much coveted ECFR end of the world podcast mugs which have a beautiful logo and the classic phrase the end is near but the coffee is hot 
emblazoned upon them, which will make you the envy of all your friends and your colleagues. And uh, to have a chance to win one of these wonderful mugs, please email me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. Um, from Anu Bradford, myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye for now. Mm -hmm.